You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In a previous session, Rabbi Kipolevich and I began to explore the personality of Mordechai HaYehudi as he um, presents himself in the Megillah and as, as he is understood by Mekubalim, in particular the Kamarna Rebbe and his commentary Kesem Eifir. And the passage from Kesem Eifir that, uh, that we presented, we kind of like went over it and translated it, but then it needs to be unpacked, it needs to be explicated. Um, which requires a lot of um, a lot of discourse surrounding the idea. So, up until we ended the interview, I I put forth this concept of the relationship between Chachma and Bina, with the letters Yud and K of of Hashem's name, in Olam Hatzilus, and I linked the concept of Chachma and Bina to to some geometrical concepts, actually. Um, the first being the concept of the circle. And within the circle, you have 32 paths of wisdom that determine the relationship between the appearances of things that appear on the circumference of the circle to the origin in the center of the circle. The origin in the center of the circle is the letter Yud, and the emergent um, aspects that appear on the circumference um, would be 32 paths of wisdom, which are, as Sefer Yitzhira says, uh, 22 letters plus 10 numbers. And this gives you your number 32. And that this number 32 is basically given over to Bina, and Bina provides a certain kind of structure which is which has a, a narrative direction, it's goal-oriented, and it's designed to bring things to a certain kind of fruition and fulfillment. Now, in the original Chachma model, everything is equidistant from the source, so everything is both, in some sense, estranged from the source, but also intimately connected to it. Because there's a direct relationship between the letter Yud in the center of the circle or the point in the middle of the circle and and any of the letters or numbers or aspects that appear in the circumference. Even though you don't see what the connection is, even though there's nothing there's there's nothing visible there, it's that's why it's a mysterious, wonderful path of wisdom. Because how the how the aspects along the circumference emerge and become real out of the center point is really invisible and never never can never really be um entirely determined fine on the other hand when you take all of these aspects all these letters and numbers and you give them over to to uh to bina bina adapts them into some kind of structure um which you can think of that as a way of using a number system to collect groups of words, um, groups of letters, excuse me, and turn them into words, which then have meaning, which then have purpose. And this process brings you from the number 32, 
um, to the number 42. In other words, when you add the 10 numbers that, that um, gather together the contents that came from Chochmah, and then on that you add the fulfillment aspect, which is, let's say, the, the uh, summation of all of the um, processes which begin because you know 42 is is 7 times 6 so you have really 7 times 6 distinct processes that can be ongoing and what and therefore each process needs its own sense of fulfillment and that brings you to the number 49 which we know very well from Spheris Eimer and then if there's 49 then you have the 50th which is the which is the keter the aspect of keter of all of these of all of these um, which at this point you would recognize now as as fifty gates of bina and the fulfillment of these seven processes give you the lamps that are on top of the menorah so the whole the whole idea of 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 um, 42 and 49 and 50 is embedded in the idea of the menorah. Um, and I guess, you know, people probably haven't heard of this, so I'll just say over very briefly, if you count up all of the knobs, flowers, cups, and, and, and whatever, in the menorah, you get to 42. And then you add the seven lamps on the top of each one of the branches that gets you to 49 and then the point towards which all of the lamps are focused you know the, that point towards which they're all directed is the 50th gate and the 50th gate here in the concept of Bina merges with the 32nd path of wisdom from Chochmah, and therefore you have a unification of Chochmah and Bina, which is somehow the unification of both of these kinds of, of structures. Um, and as I said before, we were very familiar with the Nun Sha'are Bina because that connects back to, to Pesach. You know, we were, we were, were, we were almost in uh, Nun Sha'are Tumah, and uh, we were transported to working our way through um, 50 levels of purity or purification and then leading to, leading to uh, Matan Torah through, through Sefirat Omer. And the one thing that you can say about the, the distinction between Chochmah and Binah is that Chochmah is much more like, it's a very popular topic nowadays, it's much more like unconditional love. Or like the Mishnah Mesechet Avot, where it says that everything that was created was created for Hashem's glory. Hashem, you know, if you want to, if you, if you look at a mosquito flying around or some little creature or some, something that's just sitting there, you know, you don't know what, does this thing have a purpose? Well, just by being, it is a celebration of Hashem's glory. So there isn't anything that you have to add to to oneself in order to in order to justify yourself. You know, if you have if a if a letter um tet emerged out of the out of the um point of the center of the circle and became something, um that letter tet doesn't have to apologize for why it is. It doesn't have to serve a purpose other than itself. 
which is why in the end all elements of the circumference of a circle are equidistant from the from the center of the circle. It's all really just unconditional love. And the worst thing that can happen to you from the Chachma point of view is that you forget that. Okay, and you and you mistake your distance from the center of the circle to being a true estrangement from the center of the circle. And then you you know then you forget your own essence. But if you really knew who you were, then simply in that self-knowledge, you would fulfill all of the spiritual aspirations that one could possibly have. Um, of course, from the point of view of Bina, it, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. Okay? There has to be a sense of direction. You have to walk the path. You have to climb the mountain. You know, in order to encounter your ideal self and become, and become one with that. So in, in the concept of Bina, you also have the idea that you are your own Ultimately, you are your own fulfillment, but there's an ideal reality that you have to cleave to, which is not you, but if you walk the path, you can you can get to it. And Bina is about having a, a worked-out path that can return you to your, return you to yourself. You know, Masha Enkein, you know, when you're talking about Chochmah, the only thing that you can do is, is well, Presumably, snap your fingers in some sort of way and remember who you really are. And there does not need to be any process. There isn't even any process to go because, let's face it, if you tried to climb up in the circle, well, you know, up and down in a circle is non-existent. You're simply going around, and up is down, and down is up. You know, spin the circle around a little bit. And instead of going up, you're going down. But with you know, with uh, with the processes in Bina, there is a there there is a goal. The goal is to get to Yovel. The goal is to get to the fiftieth uh, you know to the fiftieth gate, where you are truly one with yourself. But until you get there, you have a process that you have to undergo. And this process has has a, has a distinct um, structure to it. That was what what gives the what gives the structure of Binat's objectivity, so to speak, is the fact that it's a square, not a not a circle. Because in a square, well, you have these you know corners that actually hold the square together, and the corners might be very pivotal in terms of the transition that they give you. But ironically, okay, they are the parts that are farthest away from from the center. So it, this also gives you the idea that within the structure of Bina, there are times when some things have to serve the progress of other things. You know, so so when I when I think about let's say my purpose in a in a you know in a bina type universe, okay, it, there would be instances in which um, I'm not the focal point of anything. You know, I'm just a I'm just a, a turning point for somebody else's story. You know, and they have to you know and they have to progress in order to get to the to the position where they can be um, they can discover their true self. And you know, there's a kind of service that we perform for each other, and and, and there are instances in which, yes, you know, that's somebody else. They're on their way towards their goal, and and my purpose right now is to serve somebody else's somebody else's goal. Um, and it, it's really very mysterious to think that there would be some kind of da'at, there would be some kind of unification or some kind of pathway that links the heart of chokhmah to the heart of Bina, to the to the 50th gate of Bina. Um, now, 
just to give you an idea that these you know these numbers the slamid bet you know 32 and and 50 are not just um you know they're not just numbers <laughs> okay um the the number 32 appears really in in the in the creation story there's 30 times 32 times that the shem elokim the name El- elokim is set over in Maseh Bereshit. Okay, and, and the, the Zohar has quite a lot to say about this about this uh, phenomenon. At the same time, the origin of the concept of Nun Sha'ri Bina comes from 50 times that the concept of Yitziat Mitzrayim is mentioned in the Torah. So, um, there's a bit of a quibble over there because there are actually more than 50 times. There's a few, there's a few times more, but there's some good commentary that shows which, you know, which, uh, which mentions of Yitziat Mitzrayim are essential and which ones are mentioned, um, as a, as a, um, incidental to something else. Once we have a concept of Chochmah and Bina, we'll see that there are two secondary concepts that kind of flow from that, from Chochmah and Bina. And the truth is that these secondary concepts actually come from a, a higher place in a sense than Chochmah and Bina itself. They come, they come directly from Keter, but you know, we don't have to go, we don't have to go down there. Uh, suffice it to say that from the concept of Chochmah comes the secondary concept of Chesed, of, um, kind of pure loving kindness. And as I said before, you know, loving kindness is equalizing. You know, it, it assumes that basically everyone is loved, everyone should be loved just for who they are. And everybody should be sustained and supported for, for who they are. And, you know, to be in this, to be included in this circle of love is, you know, it's really the most important thing. To forget about your own identity and to fall out of that circle is, is the worst thing. And, um, the light of Hasadim is going to operate without a lot of visible structures because it's never based on a visible structure. It's based on something inner, internal, who I really am, my inner relationship to the, to, to the center, which is never, you know, is it's never really made visible. It can't be made visible because, because on on the deepest level, you know, the, circumference of the circle or the or the aspects that you know form the circumference of the circle are really one with the center of the circle they wouldn't they wouldn't be there if the center of the circle wasn't there but that doesn't mean that you can necessarily see how they emerge or that you can quantify this in any way it's something it's something really just essential and basic and and you know in a way unescapable okay it's authentic and it's unconditional, and it is not constructed. It's not the result of anything else. It just is what it just is. What it is. 
Um, and so that's the concept of chesed that emerges out of Chochmah. And, and this, this chesed is something that operates operates in the world. I mean, every time, you know, every time you um, encounter unconditional love or, or you offer somebody um, loving kindness in order, in order to help them transform and, and, and become who they are, you know, this is, this all comes from the side of chasadim. And we, you know, these are, these are things that we do all the time. You know, every family needs to have this in order to, in order to um, um, effectively live and raise children and, and, you know, help everybody mature and become who they need to be. You know, at the same time, you also need a sense of direction, need structure. And what comes out of the Bina side is something called Gvurot. In other words, these are aspects of strength. And strength implies, for one thing, the strength to walk the path. And that requires the use of free will. So, Free will finds its origination in Bina. I have to, you know, if the mountain is tall, I have to walk up it. And if I don't choose to walk up it, it's not going to walk itself. All right. So that requires the strength to choose a certain direction and to follow and to follow through with it. So if everybody, if everybody's kind of like weak and floppy, okay, no one is going to, no one is going to get anywhere. Um, another element of strength is that the structure itself of the you know the fifty the fifty gates needs its own strength in order to hold everything together right because in 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 a sense if you just if you just had the aspects by themselves and they were you know all each aspect was just floating around celebrating its own identity then then you know then nothing would be going anywhere so there has to be a the structure that holds them together, that gives them direction, that makes them makes them go, or at least compels them to go along a certain direction as opposed to just any other random direction, that itself needs strength in order to in order to be real. So these forces of strength in Gvura are what flows naturally from from the side of Bina. And when you start operating with the concept of chasadim and gvurot, or let's say you know aspects of loving kindness and aspects of strength, then this is a different level of operation. This is a different level of implementation than you have simply in the chokhmah bina realm. Chokhmah bina give you the, the the archetypes, but how these things play out in life, in the world. Um, is is a different kind of process, and that means that also there's a there's a kind of dot, there's a kind of uh, understanding that unifies these two sides of chasadim and gvurot, in the same sense that there's a, a higher form of dot that unifies the chokhmah and bina, but it's a different dot. It works differently. It operates differently, and and. Obviously, okay, this kind of dot, instead of operating on the level of Yud and K, which is the abstract realms of Chochmah and Binah, they operate in the more tangible, um, real-world aspects of the letter Vav and the letter He. Right? And it's the aspects of the letter Vav and the letter He that actually, shall we say, come down to us as practical Torah, 
that we have to that we have to follow that we have to live with that we have to rectify ourselves through this and because of the um idea you know that that Eretz Israel and Shushana Bira have some sort of relationship to each other which uh um or that Eretz Israel and Galut have some sort of connection to each other okay so i'm i'm going to kind of talk about the ideas of Hasidim and Gvurot um as elements of our existence in Eretz Israel right which is going to contrast to how these things are experienced in in Galut Okay, and of course, since we're talking about Megillat Esther, we're actually talking about how some elements of Eretz Yisrael become revealed in Galut. There's a there's a Gilush China, you know, there's a revelation of the divine presence in Shushan, which is which is the core of the of the uh, salvation that happens on on Purim. Purim is the discovery of the depth of the providential activity that is manifest not just in Eretz Yisrael, which is the, the land of Hashem's presence, but even in any place that we are in Galut at any at any time. And that's really one of the themes of, of the of the Megillah in, in on the whole. So I'm going to try to present the idea of the of the functioning of Hasadim and Gvurot as a contrast of um, Eretz Yisrael to uh, to Galut, Eretz Yisrael to Shushana Bira and I'm going to, um, you know, use that as the template for for explaining the meaning of of Hasadim and Gvurot. Now, admittedly, this is not the only template that one can use. You know, it's one of the wonderful things about about learning Kabbalah is that is that everything is open to numerous interpretations. Because let's say it's you know the ideas are the the ideas are the ideas, but the applications across all elements of life and across all all uh, all realms of being is are are you know functionally infinite and therefore there's no one shot you know there's no one specific understanding that's always true about the meaning of Hasidim and Gvurot. you know it depends on what sugi you're dealing with it depends on what age of you know history you're dealing with it what person you are what's going on because they they exist on the on the personal level on the interpersonal level on the social level on the on the uh on the on the historical level on the cosmic level and on the transcendent level and all all these all these things are coexistent so so um but like i said i'm choosing this this particular um I'm choosing this particular um, point of view on Hasidim and Gurot because it is, I think, appropriate to the uh, um, subject matter that we're discussing. Well, there are several examples that I can give you of a leader in the Tanakh that um, presents the Hasadim side of reality. And a very strong one would be Moshe Rabbeinu himself. You know, um, how is it that Moshe Rabbeinu brought all of the Erev Rav, all of the um, uh, foreign individuals that were in Mitzrayim, 
with B'nai Yisrael. And he, when they come out together with B'nai Yisrael, Moshe welcomes them on board and tries to integrate them into, into Am Yisrael, which, as we know, doesn't work out very well. But Moshe is very deeply committed to, to this path and, and makes, you wonder, makes you wonder why. And when you consider that, you know, from the Chochmah point of view, the rectification that needs to happen is for everybody simply to remember who they really are. And B'nai Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they had a sense of their recollecting their, you know, their true freedom, their true identity. And that gave them the freedom to, to leave Mitzrayim and to basically jump headlong into the empty desert with no provisions and just a lot of emunah and hakadosh baruch Hu. And in Moshe's mind, anybody that makes that jump um, has become properly awakened and therefore should be considered part of Am Yisrael. And therefore, as far as Moshe is concerned, you know, you have to, you have to uh, integrate the Eruv Rav since they have made the choice to jump with us. Right. On the other hand, um, what comes out of this from the, from the Bina point of view is that not everyone who has an experience of awakening is necessarily have the strength or the freedom to to consistently walk the path without without straying, without falling off, without getting confused, right? And that that there is a sense of timing that you need to have in order for there to be an authentic awakening. An awakening can't just happen um, at any time you want it to. There's a there's some sort of predestiny in the timing of the awakening that makes it that makes it meaningful so so when you are walking the path and the path takes time and within that framework you have an awakening okay so that's an awakening that happens at its proper time for b'nai yisrael the awakening of yitziat mitzrayim happened at a certain time and you know it happened at the end of the time stipulated for avram avinu in the in the brit ben abitarim right so the timing was there, you know, and therefore the awakening actually meant something, and it became the basis of a march towards Kabbalat Torah and and a continued march towards towards uh, Eretz Yisrael, you know. Um, but for the Erevav, their timing was was um, off considerably, and they jumped. Indeed, they did jump, and they get. get get credit for that, but it wasn't able to produce consistent results in the future, which is why Erev Rav were responsible, as Torah says, for Cheta Egel and for, and for other things. And Moshe didn't, Moshe didn't see this because, you know, for Moshe, the instantaneous remembrance of who you are is, is, the, is the foundation of everything. Okay. Now, so... Moshe is one example of a of a leader who who follows the path of uh, of Chokhmah and and Hasadim. Even though he you know has a tendency to uh, get angry and he's quite a stern law giving figure, you know that's true also about Moshe Rabbeinu. But that fundamentally he was a believer in the essential goodness of people. That all we need to do was was reveal that, and everything will be, everything will be fine. You know, every all you have to do is 
hit the stone once with your staff and water will pour for, will water will pour forth um, another another leader of that same of that same temperament um, would be Shmuel Hanavi as we know you know Moshe Aharon Bechohanav you know Moshe and Aharon amongst his priests to Shmuel Bekoreshmo and Shmuel amongst those who call out his name so Shmuel is also cut very much from the same cloth as as Moshe and when you see how he was trying to run the um run the affairs of Am Yisrael when he was the when he was the shofet he was the, he was the last shofet and he was in charge basically of of all of Am Yisrael and and like Moshe he didn't have a bureaucracy filtering people for him okay he would you know as, as when Yitro confronted Moshe about about uh, how Moshe was handling all of the people who were coming to him for for questions and judgments and 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 resolutions you know, so Yitro said, "No, you know, have to have some order over here. You can't just have people standing around you from morning till evening while you, you know, while you deal with their problems individually. You know, you have to have a structure to filter out so that only the really important, difficult problems get to you, and that everything else is handled on a on a on a lower level." So this is a very this is a bina idea for sure, but it's not it's not something that uh, that Moshe would temperamentally be inclined to do. As a matter of fact, to some extent, you know, you lose the the uh, the relationship between the the individual and the center when you impose that kind of impose that kind of structure. So when Shmuel would do the same thing, Shmuel had his leadership style was very open ended. He was he was a navi, and he would run the circuit all over Eretz Yisrael, uh, dealing with people in all of their different places and all their different situations. And the great challenge of the time was how to really unify the nation, how to create a stable structure that all of the tribes would be a part of and that would organize them so they could, so they could fight more effectively. And, um, you know, people came to Shmuel and they said, "We, you know, we want the king." Um, and Shmuel uh, thought this was a terrible idea at the time. And although in the end, um, Shaul was chosen. And you know, when you when you think of the function of a king, so you know, a king has to organize the people. A king has to be victorious in battle. A king has to has to uh, make sure that everybody has a similar sense of direction, so that the so that the country can hold together. The one thing that the king does not want is for the tribes to allow their family loyalty, their tribal loyalty to to uh, assert itself too much because then that damages the discipline that everybody has towards serving the the central goal um which is of course to you know which is to survive and thrive as a nation as opposed to a collection of of uh, families and and tribes. So here too, with Shmuel and with Shaul, you will have you have two sides of the of the Hasadim and Gvurot equation, and um, you know the first time the first time we try this, it it doesn't it doesn't work out. Shaul is is not successful, and as a matter of fact, his downfall is over his dealing with Amalek, which is something that another Ishimini by the name of Mordechai is going to have to come back to at his point in history and, and as it were, finish the job. You know, 
um, you have similar issues with David HaMelech. David HaMelech also has to come at this from the Gvorot point of view. He needs to be accepted by by the nation, has to be accepted by all the tribes, he has to overcome the opposition, and, and, and his goal also is to create a thriving um, nation which, which has a, a unified sense of purpose. Right. So, in many ways, you can you can consider that the the uh, the contrast between Hasidim and Gvurot comes out to some level, to some extent, as being the contrast between Nevi'im, okay, and Melachim between you know between prophets and kings. And I think also, so we could we could easily say that somewhere somewhere in there, you have. Um, the Sanhedrin, you know, you have the the judges of the people that are that are referred to in 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 Parshat Shoftim, and uh, you know these these judges sat in the Lishkata Gazit, and um, for those of you who are listening to some of Rabbi Kivalevich's other uh, podcasts and and lectures, he's doing a series on on um, on. Rabbeinu Yonah versus versus Ralbag, which is really a much you know broader kind of wide ranging investigation of, of many of the opinions of the uh, of the Rishonim on on various topics, and one of the points that um, he tries to make is that according to Rabbeinu Yonah, the purpose of Sanhedrin, the purpose of judgment here in, in Amisled, at least at least in that institution is more of a a creating of something sacred. It's a sacred rectification that needs to happen as opposed to a way of facilitating um the the proper functioning of society. You know, which is which is why there are rules that govern judgment al pitoa which make it completely impractical to um to use this as a way of structuring society, and kings needed their own set of rules. They needed their own um, procedures. They needed their own, actually, a court of law, okay, to adjudicate things that would not have been um, effective if it was given over to uh, to simply the Sanhedrin judging according to according to their standards. So I think that one way of looking at this is between in, if you have the principle of Navi and Melech and and um, Sanhedrin, so the Sanhedrin, the judges of the people, the Chachamim, okay, um, they're more on the Da'at aspect. You know, they're trying they're trying to unify and fit together the principle of the Navi, which is which is something that comes directly from Akadosh Baruch Hu, almost in a spontaneous way, and and uh, and has a certain well spontaneous element to it. You know, Navi'im Navi'im tell people to do things, and these are you know they're 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 not really they're not really mitzvot of in in, in, the, in the standard sense, okay? But the Navi'im do them, and the Navi'im expect other people to do them. There's guidance that comes directly from Hakadosh Baruch Hu that can that can at least temporarily abrogate a mitzvah in the Torah. 
you know, and then you have the king who's, who's, you know, his, his purpose is to make sure that the country runs properly, you know, and between the Navi and between the king, you have this mediating, um, factor of, of Chachmei Yisrael that, that are trying to grasp the unification between these two, um, these two diverse things. Um, and, you know, what happens, by the way, both Hasadim and Gvrot have a, a negative thing that can come out of them. Okay. There's something, they can, they can both go wrong in their, in their own respective ways. In other words, the, the, the um, guidance that comes from the, from the Tzadah Hasadim can be too erratic and, and um, too incomprehensible, so to speak, to, to, to necessarily follow. I mean, you know, if every if you always getting direct messages from a Kadosh Baruch Hu, and a Kadosh Baruch Hu can tell you whatever he wants and on whatever day he wants, okay, and it can abrogate a regular halacha. So, so, you know, you don't have any stability here, okay, and and that itself can can if, unless you you know unless you really understand Hashem's ratzon very very deeply, which which means therefore it translates into into halacha, which is something that the Sanhedrin would be would be. Um, um, would be engaged in, yeah. then you can end up with disorganization, chaos, and and actually a lack of a lack of um, communal unity. Which, after all, I mean, you know, if, if you don't have if you don't have unity, you certainly don't have any any chasadim. So the fundamental unity that comes out of the love of being all aspects of the of the center point, you know. You can you can lose that, and then you can simply have disorganization and chaos. Um, on the other hand, you know the problem with the gvurot is you can have too many gvurot. You can have too much. You can have too much strength, and sometimes too much strength brings about the opposite. Right. So you have the you have the problem that let's say after David, you know David brings everybody together and and there's you know cre- creates a creates a serious nation. Then Shlomo comes along and does does what he does. And creates a bit of Migdash and creates an extremely successful nation and a and a and a, a very well esteemed mini empire, which is held together by by bonds of mutual self interest and and a positive regard more than it is by military might. You know, Shlomo was not a fighter, and that's why he was the one who was able to build the bit of Migdash. You know, however. He also ended up laying down very, very heavy taxes on people, and and after Shlomo died, the thing that really precipitates the the breakdown between between Malchut Yehuda and Malchut Yisrael um, is the issue of taxation. You know, so if you have if you give the structure too much power, then that power and that can also turn into tyranny and it and it can also break down for that reason and you'll have people who simply who simply can't take it anymore and they rebel or they go off they go some they go do something else you know um of course another another dysfunction that can happen of gvura is if you also let's say um the free will that you need in order to walk the path can also be used not to walk the path. So, you know, out of out of the positive structure that that uh, 
out of the out of the positive element that Gura gives, which which gives you the strength to adhere to the structure that you that you need in order to in order to succeed, you know, if you get too much of that Gura, then it also kind of breaks down into chaos, and you can have war and fighting and and uh, and the the attempt to um, you know who's going to be the boss of the structure. You want to be the boss of the structure, or I'm going to be the boss. And then we fight over it, and we have a war. Okay, and then you and then you have multiple structures which are which are uh, which are in constant struggle with each other. So so that's not good. So the the pra- practical aspect of the Hasidim and Grot on the ground, they they each have their ability to slip off to the other side, so to speak. This one, you know, this one to the right and this one to the left, shall we, let's let's say. And that's why the the dot of the Sanhedrin, which is with it, which is both a, a, a ritual sacred kind of dot, which has the mysterious capacity to bring these two poles of Hasidim and Guran, hold them hold them together meaningfully. Well, you know, that dot um is very precious and very important, but as Rabbi Kivalevich has been pointing out in those in those lectures on on uh, the difference between the the uh, judicial system of the Torah and the judicial system of the king, um, they're not the same thing. In other words, the the dot of the Chachamim is not Nevoah. The Rambam would certainly agree with that, and it is not Malchut. Okay, it's something that occupies a p- very mysterious position in between them, and seeks to hold the two poles together and to and to harmonize them as as much as can be imagined. Okay, so basically, what I've done is I've I've tried to point out the interactions between Chassidim and Gvurot and how that uh, how that's operated in in the history of Am Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael during during the during the time of the Tanakh. And I'm sure that if we were to continue with this, we'd see endless examples of it. Um, you know, also you can you can see chokhmah bina chasadim and gvurot in 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 the individual personality of the person. But I'm I don't really want to you know go down that road too much at, at this point. I, however, you know, in order to understand these things fully, we do need to take a look at. Yaakov and Esav, because Yaakov and Esav, and Yaakov in general, is a is a huge is a is a huge sugya within this with, within this concept. So that's what we're going to do next. So if I were to say that Esav seems to express the concept of strength and power, nobody would be surprised, you know. Um, he's the hunter, so he's obviously strong enough to run around through all the wild places and, and hunt down and kill animals. Um, later on in life, we know him as a warrior. And, um, so strength seems to be his essential attribute, his attitude towards life. And I guess desire for conquest and control and it's not surprising, you know, that from Yitzchak's point of view, you know, between him and Avraham Avinu, you know, they've already covered all the spiritual stuff, you know. Um, now they need somebody who can actually um, create a stable structure for a country, for a nation, you know. And, and uh, 
they think that they need to, or Yitzchak thinks that he needs to promote this, which is why he wants to give the bracha to, to Esav. Because Esav can actually make something happen here, and it can actually create a structure that can hold things hold things together. And Yaakov seems more inclined to come at it from the side of Hasadim, okay, that um, um, that things need to be brought together in a, through a loving, non-confrontational way. That everybody has value in some form or another, and it simply needs to be awakened, and a person needs to discover who they are. And of course, Yaakov himself is in a is in a journey of discovery of who he really is, you know, and that takes you know that it, that itself takes a lot of time. But Yaakov is somebody who is going to become Israel, so there's a sense of self discovery that he needs to undergo. But in truth, you know, Yaakov is both. Yaakov is really the dot that has both chasadim and gvurot in it. So he is the one who knows how to bridge the distinction between loving kindness and strength. Esav's limitation is that he has only strength. That's who he is. And as far as he is concerned, strength is to be differentiated between its opposite, which, let's say, Yasef would consider weakness. And Yaakov is the one who knows the truth, that you need both, and that Yaakov's essential aspect is the understanding that serves as the bridge that unites these two elements. Now, Eretz Yisrael, in its totality, is both chasadim and gvurot. It's both prophets and kings and and uh, Sanhedrin, you know, Chachmei Yisrael in the middle. But Esav would not know how to construct Eretz Yisrael on those terms and therefore the truth is and this is where we get back to Yaakov's essential attribute of being truth truthfulness that Esav cannot be the one who inherits Eretz Yisrael he cannot be the one who inherits the kingdom over Eretz Yisrael it's just not him and that is simply that is simply the truth so, part of the story of Yaakov uh, tricking Esav and stealing the, the firstborn, well, what Yaakov is attaining, what Yaakov is taking here is the title over Eretz Yisrael in the future and the right to build the kingdom of Hashem in this place. And Yaakov's purpose, therefore, is to reveal the truth here, or to stand for the truth of what must be. 
So that's why he does what he does. And even though on the surface it appears as trickery, but if you're doing trickery to reveal the truth, or let's say let's say you're doing trickery to deconstruct a falsehood and reveal the truth, then that basically is the truth that you need to reveal. So the methodology is, shall we say, seemingly inappropriate, but the goal is to use falsehood against falsehood and therefore bring about the revelation of truth. And that's what that's what Yaakov is being tasked with doing here. Now, maybe he shouldn't have done it. Maybe he should have done it differently. Maybe it was absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, imagine, you know, imagine Esav becoming the inheritor of Eretz Yisrael, you know. Um, or maybe when Yaakov should have trusted Hashem and not done anything about it. And that way, that way, uh, when the time came for Yitzchak to bless Esav, Yitzchak would not have been able to because, because, you know, to bless you need to have nevuah, and nevuah comes from Hakadosh Baruch Hu, not from not from Yitzchak's own mind. So these are all sorts of possibilities. But Yaakov's intention here is to use trickery against a perceived falsehood, and then transform that situation into a greater truth, which is precisely what he does. And it's interesting, therefore, that Yaakov does this by. For, well, for one thing, being more from the side of Hasadim as he as he indeed is, but he also dresses himself in Esav's clothes, makes himself appear to be Esav. And when he says, "Anochi Esav b'chorecha," you know, I am your firstborn son, Esav. He is really saying this in a certain kind of authenticity, you know, that I am this person who can be both structure and openness, who can be both chasadim and gvurot. It's really me. Right. And that also is a kind of truth-telling on Yaakov Avinu's part. In addition, you know, you think about it, it really wouldn't even be possible for Yaakov to disenfranchise Esav entirely from his birthright. Because what is Esau's birthright? Who is, I mean, Esau, well, he might be strong enough to create structures, but he's actually a free spirit. He's the you know, running around the, you know, running around the wastelands and the deserts hunting animals. He's, he's, he's a, he's a, a free spirit. He doesn't appreciate structure. You know, he, okay, he would actually be much more along the direction of, of Hasadim. And the only thing that he needs to do, actually, is to wait, bide his time, and when the awakening happens, it will happen for him spontaneously. Okay, so he's really not on the not on the path of of, uh, of structured development, at least you know, at least not yet. It's a matter of waiting for the right time, and what needs to happen is going to happen, and the awakening will come. So when Yaakov basically arranges through his actions to um to dispel Esav from Eretz Israel and 
allow Esav to go off and find his destiny in his portion, which is Hal Seil. Right? When when Yaakov does that, it's not so much a rejection of Esav as a way of saying, "Wait a second, you know, you're you're kind of looking for the wrong." A source for your soul. Your source, the source of your soul, is not in the structure that you know Yitzchak, our father, wants you to create. It's in the wildness and the openness and the spontaneity, which comes from which comes from the side of Chokhmah. Right. So you go over to Har Seir, wait for your moment. Your moment will come. It's going to happen, and greatness will find you, and you will find your destiny then. In any event, we see that what. Yaakov has to do in his use of dot. Yaakov has to take the dot and put it into a kind of disguise. Perhaps kind of reminds us of Purim, you know, because he has to engage in a kind of falsehood in order to reveal the truth, in order to bring everything back to its proper place. So this is a case in which dot and 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 the side of the chasadim has to adapt itself to dealing with a particular kind of gvura that comes from a particular kind of challenge. You know, this is this is a, this is a gvura which which is disconnected from its chesed, and therefore, if chesed is going to operate in relationship to this gvura, it has the chesed has to adapt itself to the gvura, basically through the use of a deceptive strategy in order to make everything right. It's like, it's like you know, this is going to be, it's like, you know, tricking your child into taking the pill, okay, by claiming that it's candy or something, you know, something along those lines where, where you actually adapt your compassion in order to deal with the situation or with the person that you have in front of you. So it's an adaptation, and truthfully, if that was really chesed in its true form, chesed would not operate that way. And dat, which is unifying chesed and kura here, would also not operate that way. It would operate authentically, it would operate openly. But it is the nature of these kinds of situations, once again, the real-world situations, where dat has to adapt itself in order to bring chesed and gvura together in a in a in a positive way okay and we have this i mean we have this all the time imagine imagine an undercover agent right who who needs to entrap a criminal so that this person can be neutralized and taken out of society Right. So first of all, the heart in you know in his heart of hearts, the undercover agent is, is is full of compassion. He just wants he wants both what is best for the person that he's entrapping, you know, to get him to get him out of his criminality, as well as as well as for as well as for society as a whole, that society should be harmonious and and uh, and happy. Okay. But in order to in order to do this operation, you have to turn yourself into a criminal in order to thwart. A criminal, or at least turn yourself into someone who appears to be a criminal, but really is a police officer. Right? And this also is part of the way in which Da'at needs to operate in the real world. So you have two concepts of Da'at. I mean, you know, you have the real, authentic, absolute Da'at which exists between between Chochmah and Bina, and that Da'at 
never has to adapt itself to anything. It never has to. It never has to think in terms of function and and ultimate goal. It is what it is. It shines in purity. The dot that Yaakov has to engage with in order to reveal the truth, and in order ultimately to discover his own ultimate true self. Okay, that dot is the adaptable dot which sometimes can appear to be other than it is. Okay. And and also the chasadim that go along with this dot can also appear to be other than what they are. They can they you know they can they can appear to be something that they are in fact not. And this is all because of the adaptation. Um one of the ways in which the in which the Zohar um refers to this and it's actually in the it's actually in the prayer of of Hannah, who was the mother of uh, Shmuel, Velo nitkenu alilot. That uh, to him, to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, there are established manipulations. <laughs> okay, and this you know, and this is because Hakadosh Baruch Hu deals with everybody in you know in their own way. If somebody is going if somebody is going off the path, you know, then Hakadosh Baruch Hu will go off the path himself, so to speak, in order to retrieve that person. Right? Um, and in, in the same way that Yaakov had to put on the clothing of Esav and really become Esav in order to reveal the truth. And that way, HaKadosh Baruch Hu deals with crooked people crookedly as he deals with tzaddikim righteously. And these are, and these are psukim in, in Sefer Tehillim and in, in, other, in other places. But this is a this is definitely a lower kind of dot, which, once again, alters its appearance, but maintains its essence. One of the things that we could be saying here is that this kind of dot really cannot leave Eretz Israel, and it has to it has to stay embedded in this in this concept of the letter vav and the letter hey of Hashem's name. Otherwise, otherwise, it uh, you know it has runs the risk of losing itself entirely, you know, really forgetting itself in the in the in the in the world of all the masks and illusions and appearances that it uses in order to supposedly adapt itself. But you know, there's only so much adaptation that you can do practically before you lose your core um, sense of identity. Right, so this dot which Yaakov uses against Esav is has a fairly limited scope. It it needs to be kept very strictly within the realm of holiness. It needs to be kept very strictly within the intention of the world of Atzilut or within the within the borderlines of 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 Eretz Israel. Right, otherwise, it as I said before, it it runs the risk of losing its. In, you know, losing its its identity and its and its heart and soul. However, the original dot of Chokhmah and Bina, that amazing, wonderful dot, which which uh, never has to change itself, it never has to adapt. It can't adapt. Its light is as brilliant above, or is is as brilliant below. In the lowest possible places, as it is above in its in its source. 
And that is the light, that is the dot that is going to be central to Mordechai's personality and his um, his activities. So that's who that's who Mordechai is. Mordechai is the expression of this sublime dot as it has the ability to appear outside of Eretz Yisrael in Shushan Abira and to do to do what it needs to do without ever losing itself or without ever becoming estranged from its essence. When discussing Mordechai, there is a great puzzle that we need to try to comprehend. And, and that is that uh, Gemaran in Mesechet Megillah says that Mordechai is hinted to in the to- that Mordechai is hinted to in the Torah by the words mor deror, um, which means pure myrrh, and this phrase, pure myrrh, when it's translated into Aramaic, comes out. Mordoror, which is pure myrrh in Aramaic, but sounds distinctly like the word Mordechai. So, Chazal say that this is the place in the Torah itself where you see the personality of Mordechai being hinted to. So, where do we have this? Um, phrase Mordoror, it is in the recipe for making the anointing oil. It's in Parshat Kitisa. And the recipe is has some interesting aspects to it. Um, first of all, it has oil and has spices. And the particular way of, of uh, binding the oil and the spices in such a way has actually been discussed by, by uh, one of, another one of... Uh, um, Rabbi Kivalevich's podcasts, which are very fascinating. But leaving that aside, the actual recipe itself calls for 500 measures of pure myrrh, mordoror. And then it says, kinman besem, which is, which is um, fragrant cinnamon, machatzito, half of it, Chamishimu Matayim, 250. And then you have Ukene Bosem, which is some kind of fragrant stem of some kind of plant. Chamishimu Matayim, which is also 250. So you have three kinds of spices, 500 of this, and what appears to be 250 of that, and then 250 of the last one. Except that Chazal asked, um, when it comes to the Kinman Besem, which is 250, well, why bother saying half of it? In other words, you know, more drawer you have 500, 
And then when it comes to Kinman Besam, you have half of that, which is 250. Now, I know that 250 is half of 500. The Torah could simply say 250 and not bother telling me half of it. So the way that Chazal understood this is that, in fact, the amount of the the amount of the kinman, the, the amount of the cinnamon uh, being used is identical to the amount of the myrrh being used. And it's 500 measures. It's just that with the, with the cinnamon, you need to weigh it in two stages. First you weigh 250, and then you add that to the mix, and then you weigh another 250, and you add that to the mix. The language of Chazal is brought down by Rashi here. Lama nemarbol chatzain. Why does it say the half measure, 250? That is a decree of the scripture. To bring it in halves. Leharbotbo to imply here bet hachraot two balancing acts, two acts of weighing, which remember back then you used a scale with cups and and uh, you put the stuff that you were weighing in one side and then you put the weights on the other side so that when the two sides of the scale evened each other out, okay, that sense of balance that is called a hachraa which is also the same word that we would use for making a decision. Okay? So here we need to have two hachra'ot, one for each, you know, each hachra'ah is going to be for 250 and 250. So basically you have two hachra'ot, you have two decisions, or you have two balances of the scale for the for the cinnamon, even though the cinnamon ultimately could have been weighed just, 500 um, in one shot as the as the mordoror is weighed. So we need to, at least according to the Kamar Rebbe, we need to understand what's the meaning of the Shemen Hamishcha and why do you need two hachraot for the for the um, cinnamon and. The Kamar Rebbe teaches us that the meaning of the Shemen Hamishcha is the dot. You know, the essence of the dot is the oil. That's the essential dot itself. But the dot has to bring together, as we know, the chasadim and the and the gvurot. So the gvurot, or actually, actually. Excuse me. It begins with Chochman Bina, but it also operates within the parameters of Chasadim and Gvurot, because Chasadim and Gvurot are not exactly the same thing as as Chochman Bina, as we said before. So you have this Hachraa of Chochman Bina, this balancing of Chochman Bina, or this unification of Chochman Bina through through that. That is referred to by the measure of 500 units of pure myrrh. Okay. Now, you would say that 500, well, wait a second, shouldn't it be that 
the idea of Chokhmah here would also be represented. Because the letter, you know, the Binah side is the letter He of Hashem's name. And the letter He would be 500. It can be 5, it can be 50, it can be 500. Right. But if you what you're doing is you're having a hachra'ah here, you're having a balance here. So what's on the other side of the scale? Well, the other on the other side of the scale would be the chokhmah, which has to balance and unify with the with the with the bina. But the chokhmah is not being represented in the recipe. So what we see over here basically is that the recipe has kind of a one-sided element to it. The chokhmah side is never really seen in the final product. It's not visible in the final product. It's there in the process of weighing. It's there when you're weighing the spice, but you don't see it and you don't smell it in the final shemen hamishcha. It's kind of like a hidden player here in the in the picture. Okay, so that's a very important thing to understand about the shemen hamishcha is the the side of bina, and also the side of gvurot is very clearly represented. The side of the dot itself, which ba- which balances it, is also represented in the oil. The Chochmah side is not represented. Now, the reason for this, obviously, is that the Chochmah, when you, when you compare Chochmah to the Binah, and the Binah is so full of structure and strength and being and... and, and um, substance, so to speak, okay, the Chochmah opposite to that seems to be mysterious, intangible, and and uh, very, very hard to define. And, you know, like, if you, let's put it this way, if you go, if you go see a good functioning family, a happy family, they're living together and they're having a wonderful time, okay, you're, you're going to see a lot of predictable behavior, you're going to see people predict, you know, behaving properly and predictably and, and doing the things that they need to do and everybody works together for, for the common good of, of the family. Right? Um, the unconditional love aspect of it okay, is going to be very strongly felt, but that is the least tangible thing that you can see. That's something that's, that's something that's in the in, in the atmosphere. It's like it's like it's like everybody knows it. You know, mom and dad love us unconditionally no matter who we are. They love us because we are in this family and because they gave birth to us and, and, and that's it, you know? So the unconditional love element, although very real and, and, and by the way, you do have to, in a real family situation, you have to make sure that it's there because it's very easy to lose touch with, with, uh, the unconditional aspect of, you know, being in the family, but leaving that aside, ultimately when you compare all of the structure and behavior and cooperation and, and goal-oriented activities that you see in the family. You know, the chokhmah aspect of it, the unconditional love aspect of it, is very intangible, although it is the counterweight, kind of like the invisible counterweight to everything that you do see. So, you know, putting putting the weight on one side of the scale and, and piling up the 500, 500 units of, of uh, pure myrrh on the other side of the scale, that's a very powerful thing. So it's not as if... The chokhmah isn't here. It's just it's just not visible, but it's definitely present in the proportion, in the measurement, in the weight of the of the spice that that is there. So the act of putting the spice on the scale opposite the weight is itself an, an embodiment of the essence of the dot. It is the unification of the two sides through their equality in the weighing process.
Now, why then are you, the second ingredient, the kinman besem, why then would you be weighing that in two stages? In other words, not one hachra, not one balancing of the scales, not one essence of the dot, but two. Why do that twice? And here, the answer is that you've already crossed the line between the higher dot of Chochmah and Binah to the pragmatic dot that weighs between Chassadim and Gvurot, between between, um, aspects of compassion and aspects of strength, just as we've seen previously. And because this kind of dot needs to change its form every time it enters a new context. Like with Yaakov and Esav, it had one form, you know, and and in Yaakov and Lavan, it had another form. Because in these, you know, in these kinds of of hachraot, in these kinds of unification, the nature of the dot needs to alter its appearance in order to be in order to be effective, in order to reveal the truth. And in that regard, you have to break down the kinman besem to two hachrot, at least two hachrot. In actual fact, you know, you're going to have many, many different kinds of hachrot because for every situation where you need to operate in the real world and establish this unification of chasadim and gvurot, you know, you might have to operate in different in different manners. Sometimes you're going to, you can be up. Up, you know, upfront about what you want to do. Sometimes you have to be subtle about what you want to do. Um, but there is always these different, um, different manifestations of the same of the same idea, and they don't all look the same. So therefore, when you get to the when you get to the kinman besem, kinman besem requires two hachraot of two fifty, and two fifty. Same idea, just on a different scale. Incidentally, two fifty is also five times fifty. So in a, in a way, 250 actually matches the 500. 250 is the same number as 500. It's just on a smaller scale. Okay. That, that itself is very interesting. Um, then, when you get to the, the um, kinebosem, the, the fragrant stems, whatever, whatever they are, um, so here, your number 250 is all there is. There's no 2 times 250 here. Okay, there's no 500. It seems to be something much more limited and, and, uh, and um, specific. Okay. Now, I'm just going to talk a little bit once again about politics and about Eretz Yisrael in the time of in the, in the time of the Tanakh and, and how this how this kind of maps out. But okay, as we said, the five hundred is the is the big hachra between Chokhmah and Binah, and that doesn't necessarily translate directly into real world operations. Okay, it does it does on occasion, but with a different with with a you know quite a different uh, application. The the hachraot of the two fifty and the two fifty that is the kind of of 
That is the kind of unifications of Hasidim and Gvorot that we're talking about that happen within Eretz Yisrael through history. They have to happen with a certain element of subtlety. Then, the last hachra for the 250 of the Kenebosim, I think the place to put that is in the kingdom aspect of it. But not just the kingdom, because you have the internal kingdom that governs Eretz Yisrael internally. And I don't think that's what we're talking about over here. We're talking about the external kingdom. In other words, we're talking about the the um, external relationships between Malchut Yisrael and other people, other kingdoms. Um, you know, we could be talking in the time of the first Bet HaMikdash of the empire that uh, that Shlomo was in was in control of, or that David was in control of, because the idea of there being an empire of Am Yisrael might not be politically correct today, but it was considered to be extremely important. Um, it was considered to be extremely important back then. It was actually a fulfillment of Hashem's of Hashem's promise, you know. Um, and in in a sense, the the whole you know, point of, of is it going to be Yaakov and Eretz Yisrael or Esav and Eretz Yisrael really comprises the question who's going to be, you know, the, the center of the empire and who's going to be on the periphery, right? Um, where Esav would have wanted to be in the center of the empire and have Yaakov shunted off to, to let's say, Hal Seir or some other place where he would be, where he would be the, in the, you know, one of the, one of the um, vassal states of the, Empire of Eretz Yisrael, but in any event, you can you can really see that the that the the external aspect of Malchut Yisrael as it as it faces towards the rest of the world in that in that realm the. Chokhmah aspect, or the, or the Chasadim aspect, excuse me, relative to the Gvorot, is, is is even more hidden, because you know when you when you turn when you turn to the rest of the world, okay, you're not always showing your inner self right there on you know right there for everybody to see, right? Um, facing towards the rest of the world implies having a much stronger emphasis on on a strong posture as opposed to a compassionate and loving posture. And that's just the way international relations, relations are. Okay. So the, you know, the last, the last spice over here, the Kinman, the Kinman Besem refers to a certain isolation of the Gvurot from the Chasadim. You know, the, the, the Gvurot are even more constricted and more specific and therefore, their relationship to the Hasidim seems to be even seems to be the most tenuous. Except that here too, the point is that the Hasidim have to be present. They have to be present in the weighing process. That's where that's what that's that's where the Hasidim are located in this in this equation. So that even when Am Yisrael is turning outward towards the nations of the world and in and interacting internationally with uh, through international relations. The principle of our strength and our position and our um, self-reliance and all of that, all of that thing, which is which is very important in international relationships, never nevertheless still needs to be grounded 
in the element of compassion. Because we do have a function in the world of not just imposing some sort of oral uh, moral order on the world, um, but also in terms of doing the spiritual awakening aspect. That also needs to shine through. Now, this is all, you know, speaking speaking politically, but on the spiritual level, you know, the, the, the symbolic function of the anointing oil is to is to bring something into the service of the Beit HaMikdash. You know, it, during the time of Moshe and the Mishkan, they used this to anoint the vessels of the of the of the Mikdash, although that was subsequent to that, that did not that was not required. Okay, um, but it was also it was used for anointing kings and anointing um, high priests, and that was a function that did that did continue. So. What the Shema Namishcha actually does is that it it takes the highest level of dot, that dot which which unifies Chochmah and Bina, and places it onto the head of the person being anointed. Right, so that the individual being anointed, therefore. Um, becomes both the head of the structure, as in the king and the Kohen Gadol, but also awakens to his own inner potential and will therefore have a, you know, a, a siyata dishmaya, a divine, a divine um, effect in everything that he does. So that your so that your Kohen Gadol will be able to be in control of what he needs to be in control of, but that he's also going to have the capacity to operate spontaneously and lovingly and to and to actually do things that are not so thought out in advance, but extremely, extremely important. You know, so he's going to have both the authority of the law of the Beit Hamikdash. You know, and the the function of the Beit Hamikdash and the structure of the Beit Hamikdash, he's also going to have the meaning of the Beit Hamikdash, which is Hashem loves you and Hashem is connected to you intrinsically and inherently, and he'll be able to awaken that experience in 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 people through the service that through the, that same service of the Beit Hamikdash. Right. So Kohen Gadol needs to have this needs to have this uh, aspect of both of both um, authority. And directing the structure function of the Beit Hamikdash and the and the uh, spontaneity of awakening these charismatic charismatic responses amongst amongst other people. Okay. And you know, from the Beit Hamikdash, this kind of this kind of uh, f- functioning filters down through all of society. You know, and even in our international relationships with other with with other nations although we present much more the 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 face of of strength and and uh structure but the spontaneity and the awakening also flows through there so as it is in, as it is in the Beit HaMikdash essentially so it is Am Yisrael in the world as a whole
Okay, so having said all of this, let's try to take a look at um, who Mordechai is and what is he really all about. What is he trying to do in this narrative? So the first thing I would want to suggest is that you know, Mordechai is a leader of his people. And he's a religious authority of some sort. And he would be guided by um, Yirmiyahu Hanavi's famous letter, which was sent to all the people in exile. And it's, the contents of this letter are brought down in uh, uh, Per Kaftet of uh, Sefer Yirmiyahu. Um, you know, so says Hashem to all of the all of the exiles that went out from Yerushalayim to Bavel. Get married, have sons and daughters. Have children. Increase over there. Do not shrink. In other words have family life, have children, increase the number of you, increase and grow. And seek out the peace of the city that I have sent you there. And pray on its behalf. El Hashem. Because in the peace of your city, you will also have peace. So good governance is still an important principle here. The peace of the city, the tranquility of the city is going to give tranquility to Am Yisrael. And we have to continue to have children and grandchildren in order that there will be a population to return to Eretz Yisrael after 70 years when this, when Golos of Bavel is, is completed. So we can imagine that, that Mordechai would be committed to the principle of good governance. He would also be committed to praying on behalf of the of the nation or the empire or the city in which in which he finds himself. And this is something that Jews should be committed to. If they do this, if they succeed in having a just society wherever they may find themselves, then this contributes to the reestablishment of a Jewish presence in Eretz Israel, um, and even eventually a kingdom, although it's going to take time until it grows into that. At the very least, a Jewish presence with some kind of self-governance, with some kind of autonomy in Eretz Yisrael, even if it is under the sponsorship of, of, the, of the Persian Empire. As we know, Koresh, the first king of the Persian Empire, um, permitted the reestablishment of the Jewish presence in Eretz Yisrael, the Jewish autonomy. Um, he permitted the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, but these plans were thwarted, and um, this whole story of Achashverosh and Esther and Haman and Mordechai, all of this is taking place in this interim period where essentially everything having to do with the reestablishment of, of uh, Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael has kind of like come to a stop. The Malchut, you know, the kingdom, the empire that originally authorized this blessed event has now become mired down in foreign wars, in palace intrigue, and the more the kingdom itself kind of like sinks into dysfunction and mismanagement, obviously the worst 
the worse things are going to be for for the for the Jews for Am Yisrael, and the farther away the redemptive process of reconstructing Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael, the farther away in the future that's going to that's going to be. And truthfully, if the value of truth has any significance to the Persian Empire, then the Persian Empire would have to recognize its own commitment to what it had enacted previously. And in fact, the story is that there's going to be a, a king called Daryavish later on, okay, who actually orders people to go into the records of the empire and seek out everything that's been written down. And sure enough, they discover the original, you know, the original um, edicts issued by Koresh, um, permitting the return of the of the Jews to Eretz Yisrael and permitting the building of the Beit Hamikdash, and that ends the difficult interim period and puts things back on track. This is where I think Mordechai's um, aspirations and commitments are headed. He wants the Persian Empire as much as possible to be properly managed, based on principles of truth and honesty, and with the assumption that if you could have a good malchut, a just malchut in Shushan, then it will be almost inevitable that you will have the restitution of the redemptive process in Eretz Israel also. Another thing that we've said is that the kind of dot shifts and turns and twists and um, disguises itself. That kind of dot is useful in Eretz Israel when there's still some kind of sense of the surrounding holiness of Eretz Yisrael. You're, you're included, you're enveloped, and, and in, in Eretz Yisrael you kind of have the right to operate on this, on this level. Outside of Eretz Yisrael you don't have that right because it's so easy for your own dot to become corrupted and you lose yourself in the process and once that happens it becomes much worse and not, and not much better. Now, like Yaakov walking into the presence of Yitzchak and, and uh, basically reveal the truth about himself, about Esav, and, and about the whole the whole situation. Um, Mordechai needs to reveal the truth here in in Shushan. He needs to he needs to make that happen. He needs for the truth to come out. But unlike Yaakov Avinu, who was in Eretz Yisrael, Mordechai cannot resort to trickery, to intrigue, to manipulations in order to in order to make things happen. His one major tool is prayer, you know, his own his own ability to be machaven, to you know, to have the proper intentions that he has. But anything other than that, he is really not allowed to make use of. So in a in a in a palace full of intrigue and twisting and lying and manipulation and you know Mordechai is there kind of almost as a beacon of sincerity and honesty. And if the only way that he can do things is by trickery, then Mordechai chooses not to do anything at all. Now, there's a there's a wisdom in that sense of not doing on a deep spiritual level, because let's say there is a, there are chasadim and there are gvurot, as we know, and there is chokhmah and there is bina, and there is spontaneity and there's loving kindness and there is structure and discipline and direction. And where Mordechai would want to see the structure emerge, the good structure, rightly ruling structure of the kingdom, that is what 
Mordechai would like to see emerge in Shushan, and it is presently not there. So what Mordechai brings with him, of course, is the spiritual connection to the side of Chochmah, to the circle, to the point in the middle of the circle, to the spontaneity, to the you know, to the emergence, to the love, loving kindness that comes from that whole complex of ideas. You know, and he brings that with them with him because that is, as it were, the invisible side of the equation, just like we had by the Shemana Mishcha, you know, that the whole the whole Chokhmah and Chesed dimension is in the process of weighing, it's in the it's in the mind that weighs and that sees the equality between between the two sides. You know, but it's not it's not part of the visible reality. So that act that aspect Mordechai has complete access to. But how to bring that to bear on the situation in Shushan and one might say, I guess, wake Ahasuerus up out of his stupor, okay, and have him take control again of the government and, and begin to enact uh, just policies. You know, Ahasuerus is basically losing himself in, in sensual search for a, for a queen. And even afterwards, it seems that even after he finds Esther, it seems to be, it seems to be an ongoing thing, you know, and then he, apparently he's tired of running the show. So he, so he gives it all over to Haman, who, who is a kind of a megalomaniac, murderous type of character. Ahasuerus has basically dumped his responsibilities on Haman and has gone one step way too far. You know, he has told everybody that they should bow down to Haman. It was acknowledge that Haman is a replacement for the king. This violates every rule of good kingship. And it's the kind of situation where, like, even if the king tells me that I have to bow down to this guy, I cannot bow down to this guy because I know who the king is. So I'm really stuck between a rock and a hard place. If you're looking at it from Mordechai's point of view, I can play along with the game. But if I play along with the game, then I'm making things a lot worse. If I don't play along with the game, I'm taking my life in my in my hands here taking a terrible terrible risk but by being truthful and not bowing down there is the chance that Ahasuerus will see that and will understand it will be reported to him and Ahasuerus will understand that I will only bow down to him because he's the real king and by seeing me not bow down to Haman he'll remember who he is and what he's supposed to do Okay, and reestablish the good kingdom, the authentic, the authentic kingdom. And I think is the basic, basically the pshat of what's going on with with Mordechai. So Mordechai is using is using the skill that he has. First of all, he's using the spiritual tools that he has, especially the chokhmah, and he and he remembers the dot, and he's hoping he's hoping that by being truthful. You know, and by not engaging in intrigue, by not engaging politics, by being truthful and standing his ground, even if he has to risk his life to do it, but that this is exactly the thing that can that can help the authentic kingdom emerge out of the darkness again into the light. And once again, with the emergence of the authentic kingdom, it's very easy to go tell somebody, hey, look over there, you know, a few generations ago, they were, you know, the, the founder of the empire, uh, you know, gave an edict that this should take place, and that edict is still binding, so let's make it happen, right? 
that would be the and that would be the the ultimate goal of of getting the completing the construction of the Beit Hamikdash and completing the you know the walls of Yerushalayim, and getting and getting the uh, Jewish presence in Eretz Yisrael operational. He knows he has to work with the higher dot. He can't work with the lower malleable dot. He has to work with the higher dot. And by doing so, he hopes to bring about a reawakening and a reemergence of the just kingdom of the Persian Empire. And part of that is actually awakening Ahasuerus himself to realize, try to remember who you are. Right? And that's why I'm even willing to risk whatever needs to be risked in order not to bow down to Haman consistently time and time again. And this connects directly back to the idea of the, of the sublime da'at that Mordechai is working with and, and once again causing the emergence of the just kingdom in Shushan also brings about the emergence of Hashem's kingdom in Eretz Yisrael. At this point, at this point that they are quite dependent and quite con- contingent on each other. Once again, just to you know, summarize the the, the main point, it's, it, Mordechai is not just, um, you know, he's not an intriguer. He's not somebody who who is you know trying to manipulate or in or entreat or make you know make things happen. Um, his his methodology is is half mystical and half practical, but it it but it definitely he avoids doing the things that any other courtier in a royal court would engage in, which is basically try to manipulate things for the advantage of myself or my family or or something like that. He, he's he's beyond doing that, and he's standing for truth, and he's willing basically to take to do what it takes, including risking his own life, in order to make the truth um, emerge and and become and become manifest. So he's operating with the higher dot, not with the lower dot of of um, that operated with Yaakov or Esav and and, and uh, Yaakov and Lavan. And in the same way, you know, there is that there is that element of passivity which I which I pointed out at the at the. Uh, um, last conversation I had with, with Rabbi Kivalevich, you know, that the great the greatest Yeshua happens, you know, not because not because Mordechai does anything, but because simply Mordechai is there. You know, uh um you know, Haman shows up at the precise moment that uh, that Ahashverush in the morning decides that he needs to do something good for Mordechai. So and in in just being there Mordechai flips the entire situation over and and uh, causes the emergence of the good kingdom over the bad kingdom. Right, and ironically, if you you know if you want to go back to the pattern of Yaakov and Esav, so you know Yaakov starts out as being someone who who has access to the Chokhmah side or to the Chasadim side, you know, um, but in in enacting the element of dot, he actually has to put on Asaph's clothes. He has to put himself into, you know, he has to uh, dress himself in the Gvurot side. You know, he has to take upon himself the the um, the clothes of power and kingdom and bring it to fruition. And exactly the same thing with, with Mordechai also. Mordechai, the whole, you know, his whole, his whole, um, character arc here 
um, you know, begins with somebody who just, um, you know, stands around risking his life and, you know, not doing anything while he, while, while around him, people are wondering whether he's going to live or die. Right. And transitioning to somebody who actually wears royal garments and, and, uh, you know, it's the famous pasuk that we all, that we, that we all read together during Mikra Megillah, you know, um, Mordechai Yatsam Ilfnei HaMelech Belvush Malchut Techelet Vachur Vateres Zahav Gedoylov Tachrich Butz Vargamon Vihoir Shushan Tzaholov Samecha Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.